All right, well, uh, welcome to All Nations, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's actually been uh, three weeks since I last preached, and uh, so it feels a little awkward, but um, I want to thank you and our leadership for the opportunity to take a short study break uh, this summer to continue to learn and grow, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. It was the first time I've had that, and um, yeah, definitely want to continue doing that. Uh, one of the best books I read over my break was a book called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love uh, by a theologian named James K. Smith. And it's a book about discipleship, worship, and Christian formation. And so if you're looking for some great summer reading, uh, I would really commend that to you. Uh, me personally, I was so convicted uh, by this book that I wanted to try and share some of its main ideas and craft them in a sermon series. And so this is what we're walking through. We, we finished Mark uh, this summer, uh, the first half of Mark this summer. We've taken a quick break. I'm going to do a five-part series uh, titled Recovering Discipleship, and it's been birthed by this book. And so if you want to know uh, in depth like what I've been preaching about, what I'll be talking about, uh, so much of it is going to come from that book. I'm going to be quoting uh, yeah, James Smith throughout this five-week series. Now, um, I want to let you know that today is the introduction sermon uh, for a series, and it's going to feel a lot more topical than expositional. Uh, and so if you're used to me like, like opening up a passage of scripture and then just digging deep and pulling out the three points from that, that's definitely what we normally do here at All Nations. Uh, today, I'm going to be actually going over a couple of different passages. And uh, yeah, for the rest of the series, I'm definitely get. Uh, get into the text a lot more. It's going to be a lot more expositional, but today it's going to feel topical. And so uh, if you are a, a biblical scholar here, and uh, I just want to say, don't judge me. It's only for today. And uh, next week and the weeks to come, uh, we'll be getting back into our regular rhythm. Uh, I've always also been told in jest that uh, y'all are used to like the three-point sermon. So if a pastor comes up and doesn't give you the three points, you get anxious. You're like, where's he going? Where are we? Are we in point one, two, or three? And so it's actually become weird because I have like kind of like set y'all up for the three points. And so um, I'm not always going to do that. One of these days, I'm going to throw a curveball. But today, I will meet that need and, and scratch that itch. And so here we go, three points. Uh, first, we're going to look at the question, ask a question, how have we lost discipleship? Okay, how have we lost discipleship? The series is called Recovering Discipleship. First question is, how have we lost it? Second, we're going to look at how can we fill the gap in discipleship? Okay, how do we fill the gap in discipleship? I'm going to explain that as well. And then finally, uh, our hope to recover discipleship. Our hope to recover discipleship. Now, the whole series titled Recovering Discipleship, it does suggest that discipleship is something we've lost today in the church. And I believe that's the case, not for all churches, just for many of us, many of our churches and many believers. We've misplaced, we've kind of lost what it means to do discipleship. If you spent any time reading books or blogs on Christian leadership, you'll quickly find discipleship is the buzzword. Like really 2017, 2018, so many of the books, so many of the blogs, so many of the talks I've listened to from pastors and leaders, they're all trying to figure out what does discipleship look like in the 21st century? People are so busy. There's social media. Life is difficult. There's so many things going on in our nation, in our culture. America is becoming increasingly secular. We've become a post-Christian nation, as many like to call us. And so the million-dollar question for pastors and leaders is, how do we do discipleship today? 
How do we raise up in the church biblical, faithful followers of Jesus Christ? When we have so many things going on, so many things going against us, going against our children and the following generations, how will we do discipleship? Now, before I attempt to answer that huge question, let me share two ways in which I think we've lost discipleship, things that we've kind of have resulted in us kind of going astray and and losing our way when it comes to discipleship in the church. The first is this. We have treated discipleship as a destination rather than a direction, okay? We have treated discipleship as a destination, as an accomplishment, right? Rather than a direction, rather than a lifestyle, rather than a trajectory for your passions, right? For your values, for how you live your life. If I asked you today personally, say we go and grab a coffee at the Resolve Coffee Bar and I sit down with you and I ask you, how are you experiencing discipleship right now? You'd probably struggle to answer that question. You'd probably say, not really, not much. Or if I asked you, are you currently being discipled? Are you currently being discipled? Majority of you would probably say, no. And, you, and if you're kind of like stronger in your personality and more direct, and you might even say, Pastor Michael, it's your fault because you're not discipling me. You're not discipling me or we don't have any discipleship classes or any program. So it's your fault and it's the church's fault that I'm not being discipled. Now, why would you think that? Why would most of us say, I'm not really experiencing discipleship or nobody's really discipling me? And the reason why we would answer in this way is because we've grown up in a church We've grown up in a, in, a, in a culture, in a system, right, that, that believes that discipleship is a special class. It's a program you have to take. It's a book you have to read. Or that to be discipled, you have to hook up or link up with a pastor or a mentor who's going to teach you. A mentor or a pastor who's going to train you and meet with you and walk with you indefinitely, right? Indefinitely. And from this framework, right, from this expectation, from this culture, churches just create more discipleship programs. We create discipleship classes and retreats and conferences all to try and make disciples. But I'm going to say this, from this structure, from this perspective and vantage point, it shows that we have mistaken discipleship. Now, there's nothing wrong with a discipleship class. Okay, nothing wrong with it. I've experienced them. You guys have probably experienced them. Our church continues to do them. Nothing wrong with that inherently. And there's certainly nothing wrong with a mentoring, one-on-one, small group discipleship relationship. That's totally cool, totally powerful. My life was very much impacted by a discipleship like season I had with a pastor or a mentor. Those are great things. In fact, at our church, this fall, I'm going to launch a uh, men's discipleship. It's going to be an eight-week discipleship class for men this fall. I hope that you guys would sign up for it. And then in the spring, I'm going to do a a women's discipleship class, right? And it's going to be eight weeks as well, and uh, we're going to do that. But here's the thing. We're not going to treat it like a destination. We're not going to treat it like an accomplishment as if you do this eight-week class or a 12-week class or whatever it may be, that you are now a ready, fully-fledged disciple, In fact, what we're going to do is actually say, no, 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 this is a direction. These discipleship classes, these discipleship programs that we're going to do, they're just on-ramps to getting your life, right, on track with following Jesus, living for Jesus, obeying him, abiding with him, and walking with him. Because, friends, discipleship is not a class, right? It's a life. 
Eugene Peterson, a great theologian, he wrote this book on discipleship. You know what he called it? A long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. It sounds boring, doesn't it? But that's the Christian life. If you have the privilege to live from your age, maybe you're 18, 28, 38, 48, and you get to live the rest of your life for Christ, you know what that's going to be? A long obedience in the same direction. It's not going to be one crazy spiritual high, fireball of epic energy and experiences. No. There's going to be days filled with work, tiredness, family, stress, weariness, service, sacrifice, joy, laughter, weeping, mourning, whatever it might be. And it's going to be all of that with Jesus. All of that walking with and abiding in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that that is discipleship. When we treat discipleship primarily as a class, as a course, or as an accomplishment, that is a grave mistake. And it's to treat, it's actually to belittle and demean discipleship. There are some churches that literally will give you a trophy or a diploma for finishing a discipleship class. But what happens after you've gone through these steps? What happens after you've gone through these hoops? What happens after you've done discipleship 101 and discipleship 201 and discipleship 301? Because friends, I have churches and pastors who lead those types of classes. What, do you have to keep going 401, 501 endlessly? Limitlessly? What happens after you've gone on that discipleship retreat? Or after you've gone all through all of the training and come back from your mission trip? What is next? And here's what I found. Some of you guys have an insatiable appetite for classes, curriculums, and programs. You want more and more. And it's an endless cycle of chasing discipleship. Like Moby Dick was or my, like Ahab was chasing Moby Dick all throughout the sea to his own demise, to his own death. There are people in the church that are always chasing discipleship and looking for it in classes, retreats, conferences, curriculums. But what if discipleship was not an accomplishment? What if discipleship was not a destination, but rather a direction? A direction of your life. Where are you going? What are you loving? How are you living? What if it was a lifelong journey of learning to love God and love others? What if discipleship was meant to be experienced every Sunday when we worship? Not just, you know, for eight weeks on a Wednesday night, not just for 12 weeks on an early Saturday morning because you and your intense Christian elite friends have said, we are going to take discipleship seriously and we're going to read this book together and we're really going to launch our faith. But what if you experience discipleship every Sunday as you gather with the body of Christ? What if you could live out and experience discipleship every week as you go to work, as you go to school, as you take care of your families, you are walking, and walking with and following Jesus, and you're doing that as a disciple of Jesus. Every day as we live in community with our neighbors, serving others, what if that is more of what discipleship looks like? That's the trajectory of this series, and that's actually my vision for discipleship here at All Nations, not just to reduce it, to a class or a set of classes, but to broaden it and see it to be as large and as expansive and as holistic as Jesus intended it for us as his followers. 
I want to see us experience discipleship in community and in a lifelong journey towards Christ and his, and his kingdom. Now, there's a second way we've misplaced discipleship, not just as a destination over our direction, but it's connected to the first. You see, why are we so tempted to treat discipleship like a class? Why do we treat discipleship like a curriculum, curriculum that you have to take? And it's the reason is this. It's because we have mistaken what does it mean for us to be human? What does it mean for us to be transformed? What are the things that need to change? And the thing is this. We treat discipleship as a didactic endeavor, as if following Jesus is like an intellectual project, and it is knowledge that you have to acquire. We act like the problem of sin can be solved with education, okay? And I think for many of us, especially if you're Asian descent, we think education will fix everything, okay? I want to tell you this. There are plenty of Ivy League grads who are miserable and lost in life, okay? Yes, education is a great tool, great resource, okay? It's a terrible idol, terrible idol, okay? So use education wisely, but don't act like education is going to fix all of your problems, okay? It will not give you security. It will not give you happiness. It will not fulfill your life. And there's Ivy League grads here that will testify to that, okay? But we act like education will fix everything, including sin. We think that following Jesus, it is a largely intellectual project that we need knowledge. Now, it's true that to be a disciple means to be a learner, okay? It means uh, to be a disciple is to be a learner. I've said that many times. But that doesn't mean that to learn how to follow Jesus is all head knowledge. It doesn't mean that to learn how to follow Jesus and trust him, it's not just information-based. Learning doctrine, learning theology, learning scripture, it is necessary. This is so important, guys. It is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient. You can memorize tons of verses of scripture and still whiff when it comes to following and trusting and abiding in Jesus. And this is where I've been personally challenged and convicted as a pastor. I really, I really, really have. For years, I focused my ministry on preaching and teaching. Okay, preaching and teaching. Uh, before I came here, like I've shared many times, I was a college pastor. I was a college pastor for 11 years. And literally, guys, for 11 years straight, maybe take a couple weeks off a year, I taught Friday night Bible study. Okay, 11 years straight, majority of the Friday nights, I'm teaching Friday night Bible study, and I would teach for a long time. If any of you guys have come to a Friday night Bible study, there's times when I'll accidentally go like an hour and a half, right? So I'm teaching a lot, and looking back, I realized, you know, I was like kind of going through my Friday night series and curriculums. At my previous church over 11 years, I did a 40-part series on Genesis. 44, that's like 40 out of, there's only 52 weeks in a year, Right? I did a 28-part series on Romans. I taught on the doctrine of God. I taught on salvation, knowing the will of God, interpreting the Bible. Of course, for the college students, I taught on dating and finding your wife and being a good husband and all of that stuff. I taught on cults. I taught on ethics. I taught on things just over and over again. And here's the thing. I, I look back, and I can't help but ask, why didn't I see more fruit? Why didn't I see more life transformation? Yes, we had plenty of college students coming, but I, I kind of looked at them at times. I'm like, why aren't you changing? Like, what? <laughs> like, you're coming out every Friday. I'm teaching for 90 minutes on a Friday night, and still you're struggling with the same sins. 
Still, you're struggling with the same prayerlessness, lack of zeal in worship. Still, you don't care about justice. You don't care about others. Yes, you're still sleeping with your girlfriend. Yes, you still like, won't go to school and go to class, and you're, you're in junior college forever. And like, well, what is going on with you? And I realized this. I was treating my students as primarily thinking things. Okay? I, I, I was as if their intellect was the most important part of who they are. And that's wrong. I was thinking that, man, if I could just, just convince you, if I could just change your mind, if I could teach you true things and pass on the information that's in this Bible into your head, that everything else would fix itself. Your parents want you to think that. Your parents are like, man, if I could just get you into the right school, everything will be fine whether it's the right junior high, right high school, right? Right college. Man, if you can just get into the right grad program, your parents want to believe that if you can just have the right education, that the rest of your life will be smooth and successful and gravy. But that's a lie. That's not true. But I was doing the same thing. Knowledge is not the primary thing, primary thing that we need. G.I. Joe was right. If you grew up watching the G.I. Joe cartoons at the end, they, they had every episode, they say knowing is half the battle, right? Knowing is half the battle, and that's true. It's just half. The reality of being formed in Jesus is this. You and I, we can't think our way into holiness. You just realize that? You can't think your way into holiness. You can't think your way into becoming more like Jesus, have you tried it? It doesn't work. There's no such thing as sanctification by information. I wish that was true. Every pastor wishes that was true. That every time we preach something out of the Bible and you're like, oh, I learned something new about Jesus. I learned something new about God. That instantly you would become holier and more like Jesus. Gosh, that would be awesome. It doesn't work like that. The Christian life is not one of sanctification by information. We aren't what we think. The reality is this. We are what we love. We are what we love. And that's the premise of this series, that we are what we love. That being a disciple isn't merely just renewing our minds. That's so important. Romans 12, okay? We need to, be, have our, we need to experience the renewal of our minds. But to be a true disciple, to fully experience discipleship, it's not just renewing your mind. It's renewing your heart. Renewing your heart. And you see, Jesus he understands the importance of the heart. He gets to this over and over again in the Gospels. Finally, we're going to open up our Bibles. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And uh, actually, this passage, they're not going to go up on the screen. I don't know why Urban Mission Project just went up there. But um, after Jesus has died on the cross, and after he's risen from the grave, this is where we are in John chapter 21. Jesus, he approaches Peter by the Sea of Tiberias. And he goes to encourage him and to reinstate him. Why? Why does Peter need encouragement and reinstatement? You see, Peter had disowned Jesus just before his trial. Peter had disowned Jesus and saw his Lord and Master die on the cross. Peter feels like a failure and he's in despair. And so he has returned to fishing if you read that passage. And in this passage, Jesus appears to Peter and he asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter's just been finished fishing. 
So Jesus like points at the fish and he says, do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than fishing? And Peter says, of course. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Peter responds, and Jesus responds, sorry, feed my lambs. And then if you keep reading that passage, two more times, Jesus asks Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, yes, you know that I do. Jesus offers a prophecy to Peter on how he's going to suffer for the name of Jesus as a disciple and as an apostle in the church. And at the end of this passage, Jesus says, follow me. Think about that. I mean, it's it's fascinating if you think about that series. If you love me, follow me. That's what happened there. Now, it's clear what Jesus is getting at. He's targeting Peter's heart by asking about his love. And he's reminding Peter that the pathway to discipleship, it's not just knowledge. The pathway to discipleship, it's not just conviction. The pathway to following Jesus is love. Do you see that? Jesus says, do you love me? He says, yes, do you love me? Yes, do you love me? Yes, you know that I do. Follow me. Love precedes obedience, guys. Love precedes you making radical sacrifices for Jesus. Love for Christ precedes your service to the church. Are you going out and doing, do, like going out on mission trips and whatever it might be? What Jesus wants first from us is love. And when we genuinely love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and all the other things will follow, we can endure through persecution and hardship. We can radically sacrifice for Christ and the gospel. We can serve others. We can love our enemies and all of these. How does that, where do those things come from? Where do those resources flow from? Love for Christ. Jesus knows that. And so he asked Peter, do you love me? And today he's asking you, do you love me? Do we love Jesus? Now, if we think about our lives, not only is there a gap between like our loves and our hearts, not only are our hearts divided, but we have often felt the gap between what we know and what we do. You guys feel that gap, right? There's a huge distance between what we know and what we do. We all know gossip is wrong. And you know gossip is hurtful. Why? Because when people gossip about you, it hurts, right? Dude, deep wounds. I feel the same, guys. I'm so insecure, right? But we still do it. You know it's wrong, but you still do it, don't you? You know you should love and serve the poor. You should consider going out on our urban mission trip. You know you should share the gospel with, of Jesus Christ with people who don't know him. You know you should. You know it is important. You know the Great Commission. You know how much God loves missions, and yet you don't tell people about Jesus. You don't evangelize, whether it's to your own family members to your own friends, to your own coworkers, to your own floor mates. You still won't do it. Why? Is it because you don't know? No. Is it because you can't? No. You can tell people Jesus loved you, died on the cross, rose on the third gate, and if you believe in him, you are saved by grace alone through faith alone. You can say that. So it's not that you can't. It's not that you don't know what's going on. Right? Why is there this huge gap between our knowledge and our works? Did you know even the Apostle Paul experienced the gap? Okay. We're in good company. We're in very natural company. 
Romans chapter 7, verse 15. The words are going to go up on the screen. This is what Paul the Apostle writes. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Isn't that us? And we want to pray. Man, we want to read our Bible. Man, we want to tell people about Jesus. Man, we want to serve others. Man, we want to love. Man, we want to forgive. But we don't. We don't, and we struggle with the things. And the things that we hate, we still do. Now, if this is true, and we are like Paul, this is the question. How do you fill the gap? How do you bridge the gap in your discipleship? How do you bridge the gap between you knowing about Jesus and you actually obeying him and following him and trusting him. How do you bridge that gap? And it's, too, it's so sad that we try and bridge that gap with the same thing I was talking about in the first point. More knowledge, more education, more information. And this model has failed us. Think about this. You're like, oh, I, I don't evangelize. I know I should, so I'm gonna take a class on evangelism. You're like, oh man, my life my prayer life is so weak, Pastor Michael. What should I do? And the former me would say, hey, there's this great book by Tim Keller on prayer. You should read the book on prayer and that will activate your prayer life. And you're like, yes. And you read the book and you still don't pray, right? You picked up some cool concepts on prayer, some good verbiage on prayer, but just because you read a book on prayer doesn't mean you pray more, right? Just because you went on, on a cla- to a class on evangelism doesn't mean you suddenly you're like, I am ready to share the good news of Jesus with everyone. In fact, you're like, no change. Why? It's because it's not about information. It's, there's no sanctification by information alone. So how do we fill the gap between what we know and what we do? It's by understanding that our problem is not due to a lack of information or a lack of ability. Our problem is one of affection. Your problem is your heart. And the way we connect what we know with what we do, very visual. The, the, the connector, the bridge, it's by what you love. You want to connect what you know with what you do? You've got to go through what you love. You've got to identify what you love. And those things need to sync up. What you know, what you love, and what you do, that is alignment. That's the alignment God wants for us. You see, we wrongly think that our minds are the control center of our lives. If I say, like, yeah, yeah, like where, where do all of your decisions come from, right? And you would all, we would always say, yeah, our mind, right? We're, 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 the, the mind is the one that's like kind of like running the show, our minds, our thoughts. But that's not true. That's not true, actually. In reality, what's controlling you is your heart. Your heart is the control center for your life. You are not controlled by what you know. You are controlled by what you desire. You are controlled by what you love. You want me to give you a simple example? Uh, I'm not throwing shade at the smokers, but if you ask any smoker, is smoking bad for your health? They would say, yes, it is. I concede that. And then if you ask the smoker, you're like, whoa, okay, okay, okay. So you smoke and you know it's bad for your health. Should you do it? And they say, probably shouldn't. Probably shouldn't. And if you ask, then why do you still do it? They say, because I want to. Because I need to. Or maybe if they're really honest, they'll be like, because I like to. I enjoy it. I delight in smoking. But that, that's the roadmap. Do you guys see that? Okay? They, know that they, they know it's bad for them. They know it can cause cancer. They know it will probably shorten their life. Right? 
But what's going on? It's not because of a lack of knowledge. It's because they have a greater desire. Their desire, their longing, their wants, their, their felt needs are stronger than what they know. And so they do it. Friends, our desires are vastly more powerful than our minds. And if we're going to take discipleship seriously, if we want to experience transformation, if we're going to be the people who become like Jesus, then we need to understand that we need heart transformation. Your desires need to change. It's not just information. It's not just verbiage, not just concepts. The real battleground for Christian formation, it takes place in our hearts. St. Augustine, in his classic work, The Confessions, he writes in his introduction, and this is going to go up on the screen, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Augustine is pinpointing our hearts as the center of who we are. And the direction of our hearts, he's telling us that they need to go to God in order to experience true rest. And here's the reality, guys. Everyone wants rest. Okay. Everyone in this world is looking for peace. There isn't a person in this world that doesn't want security, that doesn't want comfort. We all do. We all do. The question is, where are you going to go to find it? Who do you run to to find security, approval, comfort, peace, rest, salvation? You see, for many of us, in pursuit of our rest, we seek rival gods. We go to rival idols of this world. James Smith, the author that I was quoting uh, earlier about this series, uh, this is what he writes on this quote. He says this, Because we are designed to find our rest in God, our hearts will be restless when we try to love substitutes. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. Sorry, grammarians and teachers, that's double negative, right? You can't not love, but it's like for reals. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate, because we all will. The question is what you will love as ultimate. Do you guys get that? We're all loving something. We're all pursuing something or someone. The question is, what is it and who is it? What do you love? That's the question Jesus asks us. That's the question God asks us. That's what, we, that's what we have to ask ourselves today. What is it that we are loving? What is it that our hearts are gravitating towards and longing for? Guys, you, you might know this girl. She's a great philosopher of our age, Selena Gomez. She even sings of this truth. She says, the heart wants what it wants, right? The heart wants what it wants, and she can't stop it. She can't control it. She knows that there are things that are bad for her, guys that are bad for her. They will hurt her. They've let her down. Those are bad and unwise decisions. But she says, the heart wants what it wants. Uh-uh, aunts, uh right? <laughs> but she knows the power of her heart. She's experienced that, and we have as well. How many times have you said, I know I shouldn't do this, but you can't stop yourself? Why? Because your heart is so much more formative, so much more powerful than your mind. Your heart is the control center for who you are. And if we're honest, as we ask ourselves, what is it that we love? Who do we love? We love so many things in this world, don't we? Some of you guys, you guys love money. Love money, payday, right? 
when that money comes in or you get that raise, whatever it might be, it just puts a huge smile on your face. The more money, I mean, Puff Daddy said more money, more problems, or you disagree. Or you're like, more money, less problems. I feel so much better. And you feel like money will solve your problems. If you got to have just a little bit more money, you'd be at peace. You'd be secure. You'd be good. Man, some of you guys, you just love winning. Even our summer basketball league, you know it's fellowship, but you want to win. You want, and, 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 and you're just so competitive. There's no money on the line, right? You're not going to win a contract or a scholarship, but you are just so competitive. You want to crush, comp- crush your teammates, even though they're your brothers in Christ, right? It's because you just want to win. And you love the applause, and you love the victory. And that's what you're wired after. You know, we, we love so many things in this world. But we have to understand this, right? Keep seeking rest in those things, whether it's money, success, accomplishment, relationships, possessions. You keep going to those things for rest, it will leave you restless. The ultimate example is this, vacation. There, I think vacations are now the new idol of our generation, okay? You ask your parents, did you go on vacation? They're like, yeah, three days in Tijuana. That's it, right? You know, like, like my parents were so simple, right? We, would, we lived in Georgia. We would go to like two-day like overnighters to, uh, to Florida. It's like eight hours of driving. We hang out there for 24 hours and drive back. And I'm like, that's not vacation. But our generation, man, we vacation. Hawaii, Cabo San Lucas, Vancouver, New York, Europe, Thailand, Australia, it's crazy. Our generation, we do it. We love it. We pursue it. You live for it. I just booked a week vacation in San Diego. I'm so excited, right? I really am. I was like, really, like my heart, my, 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 my endorphins just like shot up to a next level. I'm like, I'm going to play golf at Torrey Pines. But here's the crazy thing. If I think that that vacation, if you think your vacation is going to give you rest, just come back. Go to the vacation Go back to work, go back to school, and talk to me in two weeks. How rested do you feel? You're like, Pastor Mike, I'm stressed all over again. I need another vacation. (laughs) Endless cycle. Endless cycle, right, guys? Hey, go on vacation. Enjoy it. Don't make an idol of it. If you think that that will give you rest, it won't. It will not give you peace and circular. Nothing that will last. As soon as you're on vacation, you're going to blink and it's over. And you're back to the grind. And what you and I need is discipleship for life. We need to walk with Jesus for life and not just a 10-day high or not just an eight-week high or whatever it might be. And this is why Christian discipleship, it's not just an endeavor of the intellect. Your mind can't overcome your heart. Try as you might, your heart heart eventually wins. What we need, okay, we don't need a vacation. We don't need more money. We don't need things and possessions. We need a way to rehab our hearts, recalibrate our hearts to love the things that Jesus loves and desire the things that he desires. That's what we need. Now, here's the question. How do we do this? Okay, like I shared, we want alignment. But the ideal Christian alignment for discipleship is you align your thoughts, your heart, and your desires, and your actions, right? That is holistic discipleship. But the biggest hang-up is here, your desire, your hearts. How do we recalibrate our hearts? There is the hope. There is hope for us to recover discipleship. I'm going to share two insights, and we will close. The first is foundational, and the second is more practical. Now, there's a uh, great paradox about the Christian life. 
There's a great paradox in Christian formation that is completely unique from the rest of uh, world religions. You see, every, excuse me, every major world religion, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, they all tell us we need a change. They understand that there's something wrong with the world. Okay, there's something wrong with the world. And they'll tell you that, yes, and there's even something wrong with us. So the Buddhists will say, our problem is it's desire. You have too much desire, desire for yourself, desire for the world, desire for others. And what you need to do is empty yourself of those desires and then you'll be free. Islam says your problem is disobedience to the Quran. If you would just obey the Quran and live according to the Quran, your life would be right. Hinduism says it's bad karma. That's the problem. You do bad things, so bad things happen to you, right? But you are responsible for all the bad things happening to your life. Christianity tells us it's sin. Our problem is sin. Now, here's the unique thing about Christianity. Only Christianity solves this problem, this internal problem, with an external solution. Okay, let me say that again. Only Christianity solves the internal problem of the human life experience. We call it sin. Other religions label, use other words. Only Christianity deals with an internal problem with an external solution. For other world religions... The internal, solution, oh, the internal solution comes from yourself. You have to obey. You have to meditate and liberate yourself from desire. You have to do good works and offset your bad karma. You have to obey and live out the Quran. Do you guys see that? You have to deal with your problem and make yourself right. But the gospel tells us that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to live his life as a ransom for us. Do you see that's an external thing? Literally from heaven to earth came our salvation and the solution to our sin problem. The Bible tells us, Ephesians 2.8, that faith is a gift from God, that even our declaration to believe in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and life, it's not our own. It's not from you and I just making an assessment and saying, you know what, I think Christianity is just more cogent It's not that Christianity is more tenable and reasonable than the other world religions. If that was the case, then there's something to boast about. We're literally smarter and better than all of the other people who reject Jesus Christ. But no, that is not the case. We are saved by grace alone, right? And so even our faith, it is a grace gift from God. And the Bible also tells us that that God, the Holy Spirit, He comes into our sinful and broken hearts and what he does is regenerate us and he gives us new life. Do you see how God who is beyond us, God who is transcendent, God who is outside of us comes into our world, into our lives, literally into our hearts to fix us and to save us, to recalibrate our hearts. That's powerful. That is so unique about Christianity that God deals with our internal heart problems with an external supernatural solution through Jesus Christ and his spirit. This is the promise that God made to Israel in the Old Testament, and he makes it for all of his people because he knows that Israel, uh, I really appreciated our call to um, our confession of sin and our assurance of pardon because it's just lined up perfectly with our sermon, okay? Um, God knows that you and I have like wretched hearts. He just knows that. He knows like, like, like when I'm like, God, there's such a gap between my mind and my hands. 
And I confess that, God's not surprised. He's like, I know, duh. He knows that we have divided hearts. He knows that we have sinful hearts. He knows that we're struggling with idolatry and that we love, man, some of us love money too much. Some of you guys love girls too much. Some of you girls love shopping too much. We love, you know, all of these things. And God knows that. But the the gracious and amazing thing about God is he doesn't leave us in our sinfulness. He didn't leave you and condemn you where you are. He didn't do that with Israel. He doesn't do that with us. And so God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, and he makes his people a promise. A people who can't save themselves, a people who can't fix themselves. This is what he says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 27. And it's amazing because you see God moving nearer to his people. You see God saving and working in and delivering his people who can't save themselves. They have stone hearts and God sees the problem. He says, I will give you a heart of flesh. His own people can't obey his commandments. He says, I will give you my spirit to enable you and empower you to obey me, to be able to follow after me. This is such a powerful passage, guys. It's such a powerful promise to us. Because it allows you and I, every Sunday, every day of our lives, to come before God and confess our hearts of stone. You and I, we can be completely honest with him. We can be completely honest with ourselves. That we can struggle with that question. If Jesus were to ask you personally, do you love me? You don't have to automatically say, yes, you know, of course I do. But you could struggle with that and say, Jesus, I want to. Jesus, there are times when I do love you, and and if I'm honest, there are times when I love other things more than you. God's okay with us being honest with him and confessing our wayward hearts before him. He's not surprised at the state of your heart. He knows that you and I, we can't change and fix our own hearts, and that's why he sent Jesus, and that's why he sends his spirit to accomplish the kind of heart rehabilitation and transformation that we ourselves cannot do. You see, if you and I accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and we become disciples of Christ, we experience what Ezekiel talks about as a heart transplant. Now today, like it's amazing that we live in a time where like you can literally do a heart transplant. That if your heart is diseased and malfunctioning and, and, and no longer able to keep you alive, if you find a donor and it's a match, the doctors today can transplant your heart. That, that, that's a miracle. That's amazing. And now Ezekiel wasn't talking literally about a medical heart transplant. He was talking spiritually about a heart transplant. But I love that image because it reminds us that after a heart transplant, you actually need heart rehabilitation. Anyone who goes under major surgery, whether it's you've torn an Achilles or an ACL or, or, or like a, a broken arm or whatever it be, you need time to rehab your body. 
And in the same way for us, if we experience a heart transplant by the grace of God, by the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, what we need after that transplant, after conversion, you need rehab. You need to learn what it means to love God. You need to learn what it means to love others. We need to learn what it means to follow after Jesus and imitate him in his his character and in his virtues. Brothers and sisters, discipleship, it is not a one-time experience. It's not. It's not a 12-week experience. It's a lifetime of obedience in the same direction. And what we need is to realize, okay, there are things that we need to learn about life things that we need to learn about following Jesus that do not take a short period of time, but we need reps. We need seasons. We need accountability. We need intentionality. We need habits. Now, um, just talking about a heart transplant, uh, I did some research. I was like, okay, what happens if somebody actually gets a regular physical medical heart transplant today? And I was clicking on some sites, and I found the Stanford Medical website. And so, you know, it's legit because it's Stanford. Um, Idolatry of education. There we go. Um, but this is what they said, yeah, yeah, like there, there are three phases. They break it down, three phases for rehab after a heart transplant. And the first is this, for three days, you stay at their ICU under, you know, 24-hour care. And here's what you have to do. You have to learn how to sit. And then when you're stronger, you have to learn how to stand. And then when you're stronger, you have to learn how to walk. This is not a baby, guys. These are grown adults, grown adults who after a heart transplant during that first phase, they just have to learn how to sit upright. They're that weak, but they need that kind of rehab. And after three days, if you've, if you've gone through all of the checks and you're, you're progressing in the right ways, you move into phase two. And phase two, you have to learn about nutrition. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm an adult. No, you've just had a major heart transplant. You need to learn how to eat well. You can't just go to In-N-Out. You can't just go to King Taco. You can't just go to Lucille's. You need to learn how to take better care of yourself. You have a new heart. You need a new life, a new lifestyle, new nutrition. So you learn about that. You learn about new medication. Because you've had a heart transplant, you have to take different medications to help your body adjust. And then you have to learn how to exercise safely with your new heart. Say you're an athlete. Well, hey, you, just, you can't go 100 right after your heart transplant. You need, to, you need to ease into your athletics, ease into your workout reg, reg, uh, regimens and their physical therapists. Walk you through all of that. This is rehab. And finally, phase three, if those things go well, you transition into independence with your new heart, your new capabilities, your new regimen, and your new lifetime, lifestyle. Now, there's something so interesting. He's like, if you do these things, you know, majority of our heart transplant patients, they do really well. They flourish. They, they, they flourish. But they had a caveat. They said this, but if you've never exercised regularly, you will need to accept the need at first to exercise regularly. And you need to build the motivation to continue as you see capabilities return that you thought were lost forever. Right? That's, that's amazing, right? You're, you're dying. Your heart is literally failing you. You get a new heart, and suddenly you will be able to do things you thought you'd never be able to do again. But they also say this at the end. They said, these renewed capabilities, like increased strength and better balance, will erode if you stop your program. You will lose them if you stop your program. If you do not rehab correctly, your heart transplant will be in vain. 
You won't be stronger. You won't be able to do more things. You won't have all of the balance and live the kind of life you want to that your heart transplant is actually enabling to do you to do. Why? Because you're not doing your rehab. You're not going through the disciplines and walking through the processes that the doctors are laying out for you, that your therapists are laying out for you. And brothers and sisters, I think the same is true for us in Christian discipleship. There are so many of you who have accepted Jesus Christ very personally, with a lot of conviction, with a lot of passion, you believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again for you as your Savior. But you know what you haven't done? You've experienced a heart transplant, but you haven't done the rehab. You've been trying to love God according to your own ways. You've been trying to love others with your own natural love, your own natural standards. And you know what? Those things fail you. And you wonder why there's relationship dysfunction. You wonder why there's dysfunction in your family. You wonder why you have all these personal issues and struggles with sin. It's not because the gospel is inadequate. It's not because the Holy Spirit is not with you. It's not because God doesn't love you. It's because you never learned how to recalibrate your love and your heart towards God towards Jesus Christ, towards his word, towards others. You never learn what it means to to, to, to live in the world but not love the world, right? You never detach yourself from that. Does that make sense? It's like getting the heart transplant, knowing the doctor's like, you need to start eating new foods, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's good, but after I get chicken nuggets and animal-style fries and hot Cheetos because those are my favorite foods and I always ate those. And then you wonder why things are going amiss. And I think there's just so many of us who have, who have eroded in our, in, our, in our relationships with Christ because we have neglected cultivating and curating our loves and our hearts. Brothers and sisters, that's what this series is all about, to experience personal renewal in Jesus. It's not a crash course on discipleship. It's about seeing Jesus in all of life. We're going to talk about worship we're going to talk about how discipleship happens in community, not just because you're linked up with a pastor, but you're going to experience, I'm going to talk about discipleship here on Sundays, what that looks like. We're going to talk about that, what that looks like at home with your families. We're going to talk about what that looks like at work and in, in the world. And I hope that we would get a bigger picture of discipleship than ever before. Would you consider Jesus Christ? Would you consider putting your life in the direction of his kingdom and his grace and his gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, um, gosh, your supernatural solution to our sin problem. We thank you for your gracious, perfect solution to the fact that our hearts betray us, that our hearts are deceitful, that we struggle so much with what we love. We thank you that, God, you are a God who enables us to love you back because you first loved us. Help us to experience that. Help us to walk in that. Help us to be renewed in our loves, God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the perfect solution to our sin. And I pray, God, that you would instill hope and joy and faith again that you are a God who's able to change us. Lord, we've tried so many times. We've wanted transformation so often, and we've, we've failed ourselves. But Lord, I pray that you would. You would give us hope again, not in our own abilities to change, but in your ability to change us. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.